From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's been a year since an officer murdered George Floyd in Minneapolis. To mark the anniversary, a community task force imagines how the city of Denver could change to do less harm. From homelessness to zoning, mental health care to policing. When is it necessary for someone with a gun to show up to a 911 call? Do we need someone with a gun showing up when someone is having an addiction or mental health crisis? This group's hundred or so recommendations include more citizen oversight of cops, safe injection sites for IV drug users, and more support for people getting out of jail. Today, Denverites reimagine how Colorado's capital city operates, how they'd pay for it, and the obstacles ahead. I remember my very first gift to public radio. I think there's a certain amount of integrity that you have when you support something you say is important. I was nervous. I was nervous that my gift wouldn't matter, that it was so small that it wouldn't count. But every amount does matter. It felt really, really good to know that my donation was really making an impact and helping it happen. It's super easy. Just go online, make your first gift at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. A year ago tomorrow, George Floyd was killed on a Minneapolis street. He was asphyxiated by a now former cop who's since been convicted of murder. Floyd's death sparked protests nationwide, including in Denver. And activists here want to make sure the momentum towards racial justice continues. On Friday, a community task force laid out its vision for a city that does less harm from policing to mental health. If Denver's leaders take these hundred or so recommendations to heart, it would be a transformation of Colorado's capital city. Pastor Robert Davis helps steer the task force. He's also a leader in the Greater Metro Denver Ministerial Alliance. Pastor, thank you for being with us. Thank you. So good to be here. And Rue Johnson is a community activist who serves on the task force. Professionally, Johnson consults with brands to diversify their reach. Hello, Rue. Hello. Good morning. I want to note that Colorado passed a slew of police reforms this past summer, banning certain kinds of holds, codifying that an officer has a duty to report misconduct when they see it, broad adoption of body cams. Clearly, you think there's more to be done, and specifically in Denver. I'd like each of you to pick a recommendation from this report that you think could make a big difference if implemented. Pastor, why don't you begin? All right. And I'll I'll, I'll start by just simply saying I'm so encouraged by uh, the legislation that came out, uh, especially last summer. I believe it was uh, HB uh, 2217. Uh, very good legislation. What are the things that makes what we're doing a little bit different than just focusing on policing practices is looking at uh, public safety in its totality. So, you know, there's this one approach, of course, that looks at how many uh, bullets a police has in his gun or, uh, you know, what, what type of munition he has available, he or she has available to them. Uh, but there's also the, the, the question of how do we, uh, strengthen our communities to such a way that policing as we currently know it is not even necessary, even, you know, among those who really view policing as essential. So uh, that that's more of the direction that many of these recommendations have taken. Uh, 
Um, there, there are several of them, and I, I don't want to kind of dance around your question, <laughs> but there's no, there's no one recommendation that is a panacea. What makes this, this report so powerful is that it is comprehensive. It looks at, so taking one recommendation in isolation will not really give you the full picture. It is a comprehensive approach looking at five strategies. Uh, so what I prefer to do is to share with you one of the strategies that I think is most powerful, sure. if that's okay. Sure. Okay. And for me, the uh, the two that are most powerful is to empower the community with the resources to adequately address socioeconomic needs and provide for their own public safety. And the second strategy, which is minimize unnecessary interaction of law enforcement and the criminal legal system with community. I think that those two are um, extraordinarily important as we talk about how do we envision public safety and policing moving forward. The, the report makes several mentions of a program that already exists in Denver called the STAR program, which instead of sending armed officers, sends mental health professionals to many calls. And it, it really does seem that fundamentally you envision a reduced role for armed officers in daily life. Pastor, do you think that's true? Yes. And one of the questions we have to ask ourselves, and, and this kind of goes into the work that uh, Rue has been doing, uh, one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, when is it necessary for someone with a gun to respond to a situation? And I've been saying this over and over again. You know, there's so many uh, calls to go out to officers. And the question that we have to ask ourselves just as a society is, when do we want someone with a gun and other munitions to show up to a scene? And if we look at the George Floyd case, perfect example, you know, did we need someone with a gun who is already on edge? You saw from the moment they interacted with him, they were using profanity and hostile. Do we need someone with a gun to investigate whether or not someone used a counterfeit $20 bill at a convenience store? A reference there, uh, no doubt, to the George Floyd case. All right, Rue Johnson, I want to give you the same opportunity. Uh, I, I know it's hard to sort of pick a favorite child, but um, uh, could you point to a recommendation about transforming public safety in Denver that you think is indispensable? Well, like Dr. Davis said, it's really important to see these recommendations in totality instead of operating with them under the premise of, you know, a silo, for example, because they're really meant to build upon each other and to really amplify each of these strategies in a way um, that really creates messaging for the community to prioritize public safety from a perspective of healing. But to answer that question, you know, there's there are so many, um, but I feel like one that really encapsulates what I feel about messaging and how I feel the community can most benefit um, is recommendation number nine, which says to increase city funding potential for qualified community-based organizations, like one that you mentioned, um, and those that prioritize community care by streamlining and removing cumbersome barriers to requests for proposals and requests for qualifications and contracting and granting processes. I now, think that, that, they so may, that might stroke, strike folks as, you know, uh, a bit bureaucratic. Unpack that for us. What does that mean on, on the ground? Yeah, exactly. So tons and tons of red tape, right? So what that really means is there are these, uh, there are many community organizations that are able to respond to community crises with the care and the training and the messaging and the, the language of the community. Um, and the, this is an exact example of what Dr. Davis was talking about in terms of funding organizations that don't have to um, respond with a gut, you know, and, and also when it comes to removing those barriers to access, you know, I guess maybe sort of a, 
what people say is like, oh, well, there are, if community organizations exist, then why don't they just jump in and try to help? But there are, there is that red tape. There is that bureaucracy um, that become barriers to access and entry for community organizations that can really prioritize the healing um, of our communities as it relates to public safety. Healing is a big theme here. And what I hear you saying is that there are perhaps nonprofits or uh, mental health experts who are better equipped to respond to crises in the community, but they may not be able to get the funding and the acknowledgement from the city because of the red tape you speak of. Some of these recommendations are really specific. Creating safe injection sites for IV drug users, banning police use of facial recognition technology, no handcuffs on minors. Uh, But other recommendations are quite broad, vague even, prevent and eliminate homelessness, use data to prevent displacement driven by gentrification, uh, Pastor, briefly, put yourself in the mayor's shoes. What would you do with a recommendation like prevent and eliminate homelessness? Well, what I would do actually is I would keep the promise that I made when uh, when 300 was on the table, which is we're going to uh, seriously and thoroughly uh, address home- the homeless crisis. Uh, which we're now, what, two years, two and a half years removed from that initiative. And the city has done, you know, virtually nothing uh, to really address the homeless crisis that is plaguing our city. And so you have frustration from our unhoused citizens, you know, that they that they can't find uh, safe places. You have frustrations from um, homeowners and residents who, you know, consider our unhoused citizens as eyesores and that tension that's developing between business owners, et cetera. So that recommendation is really to say to the city officials, you know, you've had uh, almost 12 years now to address this issue, to really tackle it. And we in the community saying it's time to do it. I'll say, of course, there has been unprecedented economic difficulty in light of the pandemic, which is no doubt exacerbating the situation. Well, we reached out uh, to Denver's Department of Public Safety, which oversees police, fire and sheriff's departments, and they say they've received this report. They won't comment in detail until they've had a chance to digest it. That may be as soon as Tuesday, by the way, when they're scheduled to speak with our colleagues at Denverite. I want to note, though, that the public safety director, Murphy Robinson, was part of the task force, but he dropped out, uh, emailing you, Pastor Davis, quote, I was optimistic about the potential these meetings would have to drive positive collaborative change, but must share that I am increasingly concerned about the direction these meetings have taken. And he added that the task force had marginalized the voices of three law enforcement officials. Does that undermine your cause, Pastor? No, it doesn't. And I'll tell you why. Uh, We had a when we when we started this this is and by the way this is the first um and only initiative that I'm aware of in the nation that is 100% community led and community organized so when we began having our meetings we were very clear the role that we were hoping city council uh the district attorney's office as well as the department of safety would play in this process we wanted to elevate the voice of community but we wanted our, our city officials to serve as counselors and advisors as we began to think through these various issues because they have a lot of the background and, uh, you know, um, all of the research and things that they can they can help us to understand how to approach these issues. And so it was never a forum where uh, law enforcement was supposed to be guiding the process or in charge of the process. And it appears that at some point that became a point of contention 
that law enforcement was not able, as we see in most cases, to kind of, you know, set the agenda, but were rather asked just to be advisors and counselors throughout the process. Okay, so a disagreement over what voice they should have as this moved forward. Rude Johnson, you are very active in LGBTQ issues, and I wonder what some of the changes are that you'd like to see uh, beneficial to that community in particular. Well, I think as with all communities, what's very important is to make sure that all voices are heard and that representation um, exists across the board. And I think what makes the task force so unique is that the representation from all aspects of the community really were able to, you know, coexist and bring all of our philosophies together and feel like everyone was represented. Um, That means that activists were able to connect with interfaith communities. That means that LGBTQ folks were able to connect um, and, and feel like their voices could be heard in a way that would provide um, a scope, a lens for of the recommendations in a way that all can feel protected and all can feel like we can reimagine public safety so that it truly works for community. And I think a big part of my work has been about creating a space where voices that are not traditionally a part of the conversation can not only be a part of the conversation, but can take a proactive approach to creating recommendations and I think policies that affect us. Yeah, and that's, um, that's, that's really things. what I want, want to dial in on. What would change in policing, in public safety for LGBTQ people under this plan? Well, I think that um, in it, it's not just about policing. We, when we think about public safety in general, um, the conversation is about representation. It's about understanding the nuances of how communities operate and the differences and the obstacles and the challenges that LGBT communities face. When we talk about decriminalizing sex workers, when we talk about um providing more mental health resources so that uh, those who are actually equipped with the knowledge necessary to respond to issues that affect the LGBT community, like, like homelessness, like, um, you know, like actual participation in our communities that make LGBTQ folks feel comfortable and safe and eliminating police interactions. So it's really about directly um, having representation for communities and folks who would be operating under the lens of public safety in a way that feels like they are trained and understand the communities that they're existing in. You want their voices to be at the table in a bigger way. How would the city... In an informed way, yeah. How would the city's jail change and and who gets jailed uh, if these recommendations were adopted, Pastor? Yeah, I think, um, and, and you asked me earlier, you asked me earlier what, if I could choose just one. And I can answer that question and, and this one together. Uh, recommendation number 63 says, create a community-led committee comprised of those with lived experiences and individuals from most impacted community, along with the Public Defender's Office, to review all municipal criminal ordinances to determine which ordinances are antiquated, ambiguous, and unnecessary to public safety in order to mi- minimize citizens' interaction with law enforcement and the criminal courts. Um, so to answer your question directly, the, the the point is, again, as we ask, what is it, when is it necessary for someone to show up a gun? The other question is, when is it necessary to put someone in a cement cage? You know, is does someone need to be put into a cement cage, uh, you know, because they, they failed to pay um, a speeding ticket? Uh, does someone need to be put in a cement cage, uh, as Rue just talked about, because they're, you know, attempting to provide for their family or provide for themselves through uh, sex work. Does someone need to be put in a cement cage for, for some of these many other other causes? So it would this what we're proposing is that community come together and figure out 
when do we think it's necessary to lock someone in a cage? I, I just want to note that um, there are several recommendations about supporting cops, providing culturally competent and mandatory routine mental health supports for officers to address the trauma of the job, also beefing up investigations when officers who stand up to misconduct are targeted or harassed on the force. But you also want to weed out cops with a demonstrable racist track record. Rue, how do you do that? Well, I think maybe, Dr. Davis, you want to take a stab at this first and speak about it from a technical perspective, and then I can tap in on the community level. Sure, Pastor. Okay, so from a technical level, one of the things, for instance, is the screening process uh, on how we identify whether or not officers are racist, uh, you know, screening their social media posts, doing a more thorough background check and more um a, a more thorough check as it relates to uh, you know their their mental their mental health. One of the things is that the um, agency that provides a screening for the uh, DPD has been the same agency doing the screening since the 1970s when we know that we had some serious challenges with racial issues. So if you have the same organization, uh, same agency rather, doing the screening process from the, since the 1970s. Uh, then that in of itself ought to raise some red flags. So we need to overhaul how officers are recruited. We need to begin to overhaul how officers are um, evaluated and how they are, are, are screened. That's the word. The report even makes mention of white supremacist tattoos. If people have body images, for instance, that reflect that. Uh, Rude, do you want to speak to that issue in a, in a sort of broader way? Well, I think the broad perspective on that from a community perspective is that um, many the, m many people in the community feel like policing in general has a foundation. Um, and, and I think the history sort of supports the understanding that policing comes from a racist and supremacist point of view. And so in order to really have a proper screening, we have to sort of have a historical understanding of, of police in this state, um, police in this country, and the, I would, I would say the culture of policing in general from a community perspective. And, and I don't think that um, there has been proper screening available for that because you can't really have the same process available throughout decades of, of a culture of policing that has actively been hurting communities. So from a community's perspective, I think really just recognizing the history of how policing has existed in this country in general is the first step before there can be any um, screening that would really even make a difference. And we hope to hear from Denver law enforcement later this week uh, in reaction to the many recommendations that you've put forth. So as I read through these recommendations, I wrote dollar signs next to the ones that seem to require funding. Uh, create a funded re-entry department to serve adults and youth who've been involved in the justice system. Create a centralized, secure mental health facility. Fund the DA and public defender's offices equitably, uh, ensure sufficient mental health treatment inpatient and out, including for substance abuse disorders. Do you envision new taxes to make these investments? Rue, I know you have to go in about the next minute, so I'm going to let you answer that first. I think that the police, the public safety budget is currently large enough that money can be taken from the public safety budget to fund these programs and to adequately fund the programs that will provide training um, for community-led organizations as well as um, 
provide uh, community resources for people who can actually speak to the issues of what community needs instead of law enforcement. I think that the budget currently exists is large enough to, um, you know, remove funding from certain aspects of that budget over to community-led organizations that can provide a bigger and greater impact while eliminating the connection between the community and law enforcement. So I think what I hear you saying is this is the more nuanced version of defund the police. In other words, this di- is exactly defund the police, 100%. That's what that actually means defunding the police means actually taking those extraneous dollars and reinvesting it into our community in a way that eliminates interaction with law enforcement, creates um, safety within our communities, and empowers the community to take care of each other um, on a bigger, greater level. Ruth, thanks so much for your time. I'll let you go. Thank you for having me. That's community activist Rue Johnson, member of this task force to reimagine policing and public safety. And we'll spend just the last few minutes with its leader, the Uh, Pastor Robert Davis. So, Pastor, what kind of feedback have you received thus far from the city? What are you hearing? Um, I've I've, had an opportunity to speak with several members of city council. Uh, They were uh, encouraging. Uh, They're going to look at the uh, recommendations, and we're already beginning to think about how do we begin implementation. You know, what does that, what does implementation look like? How do we continue to keep community involved in the conversation around implementation? Um, I did have a conversation with uh, Director of Safety, uh, Murphy Robinson. I was encouraged by that conversation. Uh, we also um, are scheduled uh, or at least planning to schedule some time for us to sit down and to talk about what that looks like. Um, and uh, I'll be meeting with the district attorney today to also have, uh, you know, to begin the conversation as well. Her office has been involved in the uh, uh, help, you know, help to create these recommendations, et cetera. So uh, where we move from here is really uh, continuing to keep this community model of having so many voices at the table. And then now figuring out how this community model partners with the various uh, implementation agencies or agencies responsible for implementation. Yeah, I mean, this is no small task. I mean, you've got involved the Denver Department of Human Services, housing stability, the auditor, transportation and infrastructure, uh, community organizations as well. I, I guess just in the last little bit, why don't you address that question of whether you think new revenue is needed for this or if it's just a reallocation of of the, of the city's current priorities? I believe it's a reallocation and a reprioritization. Okay. If our priority is to, again, put people in cages, then we're going to uh, allocate our money to that. If our priority is to strengthen uh, vulnerable people in vulnerable communities so that they, again, have the resources that they need to provide for their own public safety, then we'll put our money into that. The The, the question is always, what are your priorities? And this document here, which is very comprehensive, which is why it has all of these various uh, agencies that are, you know, that are, that are listed here. Mm-hmm. This document here says that our priority is actually having a safe and well community, not just a strong uh, you know, uh, a thoroughly weaponized uh, police department. And I think that if we begin to, to to reprioritize and to say, okay, number one, if we can just prevent people yep. from even having to come in contact, that is where we need to be allocating. So I don't see additional taxes and, you know, all of the the, um, the things that, that, that frighten people coming into play here. I think it just comes to us really becoming imaginative and reimagining how we do public safety. 
That is Pastor Robert Davis, who helps lead a task force that is indeed reimagining public safety in Denver. The coalition's made more than 100 recommendations that could transform the city. And you can find those in coverage at Denverite and CPR. Our conversation was produced by Anthony Cotton. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's really important to me to share stories of people who aren't traditionally represented in media. Haley Sanchez is on the CPR News public affairs team. I feel like some communities get forgotten really easily. And so my goal is to delve into communities whose stories are not being told in certain situations. Listen for the work of the Colorado Public Radio Newsroom every day here on CPR News. Wildfires last year tore through the state's forests. A group of indigenous students believes a native approach to fire suppression could quell future blazes. CPR education reporter Jenny Brandine traveled with eighth graders from the American Indian Academy of Denver to the site of the historic Hayman Fire southwest of town. Twenty years ago, on this very spot, winds were howling, temperatures soaring, and a fire was burning so hot it burned ground cover to black soil. Today, middle school students in black hoodies walk up the mountainside. It's really hot today. Can I have some water, Red? And though it's been nearly 20 years since the Hayman fire, there's still no ponderosa pine or Douglas fir. But science teacher Creighton Hoffeditz tells the kids to look for what is on the land now. Are there trees? Are there bushes? Are there plants and wildflowers? They're getting help from drones. Meadow Yellowhawk is flying a drone over the fire-ravaged land. Yeah, you can see that. Do I have to keep going up if no. I wanted to stay there? Yeah. It's part of her science unit on wildfires. The American Indian Academy of Denver, just in its first year as a middle school, has a STEAM curriculum. That's science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. Founder and head of school Terry Bissonette says indigenous principles and knowledge are infused throughout the curriculum. We've been scientists builders, innovators, artists, mathematicians since the beginning of time. Many other STEAM schools are about getting kids ready for the jobs of tomorrow. It's that, but it's really about reclaiming the genius of our ancestors. And she says bringing it into a 21st century format so kids can see its relevancy. Student Rose Leba says take wildfires. Back when indigenous people were still on their land, they did practice controlled burning. She says native people set up a perimeter and burned within it, clearing out underbrush. New plants would grow back, replenishing the forest. When white settlers arrived, she says they brought a different philosophy on fire. Like it had a different meaning to them than it does the indigenous people. The view was to suppress wildfires at all costs. Without the periodic fires, the forest lost an important control mechanism. Experts say the forest in the Hayman Fire was unnaturally dense. For their unit, the students studied how indigenous views on wildfire are starting to influence fire management strategies in places like Australia and California. Back at the drone controls, Meadow Yellowhawk describes what she sees. It looks dry. <laughs> the colors she sees. Kind of like a orangish. Yellow, red. <laughs> but she is seeing new plants that weren't in the forest before. There's yucca and sage. Science teacher Creighton Hoffeditz. I just want them to understand the process of regeneration and healing of the land and what makes that possible, what makes it not possible. 
Students today are also checking out the soil. Joe Ortiz and Sean Demarius dig a hole, add water, and form a mud ball. It falls apart. It was very sandy, lots of grain, not much clay like we were hoping. Yeah, it like fell apart when you squished it. Joe says the intense heat of the fire, coupled with climate change, left the area without any moisture. The fire was so hot it eliminated the seed bed. I saw a lizard. Me too. Teachers encourage the kids to explore today. They want these city kids to develop a relationship with the land. Some kids climb higher up the mountain. They like the fresh air. Purple flower. They discover moss on rocks. They're on the lookout for wildlife. Poop is big. Yeah, that, that is poop, yeah. The kids say they're more comfortable at this school than other schools they attended. Just 60% of Indigenous students graduate from Denver Public Schools. But at the academy, Indigenous students say they finally feel like they belong. Here's Alex Wolf. I like going to a smaller school. It just feels like you're less lost and like forgotten. And student Joe Ortiz. You feel like kind of a safe space because you're with people who are like you. Students say they like learning about indigenous traditions and knowledge. Rose Leba. If we don't have anyone to keep carrying these traditions on and telling these stories and being able to teach the future generation their way, it's just going to die out and then we're just going to be nothing special. Go smell it, Meadow. Before heading back to Denver, a teacher motions the kids over to smell the sap on a ponderosa pine in a healthy part of the forest. The kids crowd around the tree and breathe in deeply. Oh, I can smell it now. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're hearing Colorado Matters from listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.